I am Charlotte Kassaragi, and in partnership with the House of Chanel, I present to you the Les Rencontres podcast. As part of the Rendezvous Littéraire at Rue Cambon, this podcast spotlights the birth of a female writer. You can listen to the various episodes and their authors on your preferred streaming platforms. Happy Saturday. It's January 20th, 2024, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And before we get to the next great issue of Airmail, Michael, how is the weather in New York? It's cold. It's in the teens. Come on, that's kid stuff. I'm sitting here last night. It's about minus two in Chicago. And my mother, who is in her 80s, and she says, she texts me, she says, I'm going out to dinner. I can't stay in the house anymore. That's the Midwestern people. They show up for Kansas City Chiefs games. They go to the Iowa caucuses. They don't care about cold, so... I can't complain. We should call it the Barbara Way. Well, it's two degrees here in London, but that's centigrade. So no complaints from me. It's been a little bit frosty, but otherwise, okay. Okay. So it seems like you and I fortunately have avoided the cold front that is sweeping the nation, at least for now. But it's nice and toasty here, Michael, on the podcast. We've got lots of interesting things to talk about today. It's cold outside, but it's warm in here with a hot issue. We've got some great stories. We've got Joanna Berkman is going to join us with her revealing report on how the Ivy League has used its prominence to stand against various forms of racism in college sports. Yet when it comes to speaking out about anti-Semitism against Jewish students who compete on behalf of Ivy League teams, the schools have been conspicuously silent. Then, Alexander Marshall will join us from France with her notes on the country's dashing new prime minister, who is only 34 years old, and she will tell us why seemingly everyone in the country can't stop talking about him, including the man who bullied him in high school. And finally, John Aldridge will join us from the UK with the shocking details about one of the worst miscarriages of justice in British history, when more than 700 people were convicted of a crime they didn't commit. Yet, it didn't happened hundreds of years ago. It happened from 1999 to 2015. And finally, finally, we'll stay in London to learn about the return of Le Caprice. The restaurant was beloved by everyone from Princess Diana to Mick Jagger back in the day, and then it closed a couple of years ago. But now it is reopening, and a smart, lovely writer named Ashley Baker will be here to share all the details. Ashley, where would you like to begin today? This issue is very heavy on gravitas and meaty issues, so I think we need to start with an absurd character in French politics, which is Juan Bronco. And Alexander Marshall, a writer at large for Airmail who is based in Le Perche, France, is here to tell us all about the high school bully who continues to traumatize the newly appointed prime minister of France. Welcome, Alex. Hi, guys. How are you? Alex, we're really excited by this intriguing, stylish, dashing new figure in French politics, Gabriel Attal. You and I have been texting about this nonstop. Who is he? Who's the new prime minister of France? Gabriel Attal is intriguing and dashing. He's a 34-year-old, extremely talented whiz kid who has been a protege of Emmanuel Macron since Emmanuel Macron started his own political party in 2016. Before that, he was a member of the Socialist Party, working for the health minister at the time under François Hollande called Marisol Touraine, who was a powerful and influential woman. And Atal was known to be a very good networker and likable and extremely hard worker, a total front row kid, as the French love in their politicians. So he joined Emmanuel Macron's movement in 2016. He was an elected official in the southern suburb of Vanves. And then he started to get ministerial positions. And the French people in general, outside of government, first really got to know him when he was the government spokesperson during COVID. 
And so he gave a lot of addresses directly to the French people, where he was noted for being a really excellent communicator and for being quite on top of his briefs. Then he was named Macron's Minister of Education, which is usually a very tough post. You're always kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place in that job. It's a tough position for which to be liked. And when Atal was nominated, he was only in his position for five months, just really quickly. So we're talking about a very brief time in education. But he immediately passed a reform about outlawing the abaya, which is a form of modest dress that Muslim girls wear in school. And he outlawed that from public schools, which to me is not a reform that I support or find healthy for society, but was very popular with French people. And he also embarked on a really meaningful anti-bullying campaign. So he held that position for only five months. But in that time, he became the number one most popular politician in France. One wonders if it wasn't because of an appearance that he gave on television in November, this past November, while still in his post as education minister, where he talked about his own experience with bullying in high school and then later in life. And he didn't name names, but everybody in France knew who he was talking about. We'll get into those details in a minute. But it was a very moving appearance for a politician who had not yet been seen as a very personable guy. So Atal is a popular minister at the time that Macron names him PM. Because he's so young, because his ascent was so fast, he had four ministerial positions in four years, and then suddenly he's the number two head of state in the country. Of course, there was a lot of talk. And one of those people doing the most talking about him was, turns out, one of his high school and middle school classmates. Exactly. When the announcement was made, the first place I went, as opposed to like, I didn't rush to the front page of Le Monde, which I usually do when there's big news that happens in France. No, I went to the Twitter page of Gabrielle Attal's high school nemesis, Juan Bronco, probably his most vocal critic and has been since he published, well, since he published a book slamming Gabrielle Attal in 2018. But since they were in high school, middle school, at a very posh 6th arrondissement private school called the École Alsacienne, which is a place where a lot of members of the elite pass through. While they were together, they were in the same year at school at Alsacienne. Gabrielle Attal was popular, posh, had the vibe of a sort of John Hughes villain a little bit, like kind of snobby, kind of cool, whatever, a little bit of a dick. Juan Bronco had the, if we want to keep Going back to John Hughes, because we are talking about high school, Juan Bronco was sort of the Judd Nelson character in The Breakfast Club, except he came from a rich family, so a successful film-producing family. So he was the edgelord loner who started two blogs in the very early days before Facebook became a big deal in France. There was this platform called Skyblog where you could post things and people could comment. So it was like very early social media. And Juan Bronco started two Skyblogs at Alsacienne. One where you, people would post pictures of girls and comment on them, and one where they would post pictures of guys. And so he used these platforms. There was a lot of gossip. There was a lot of bullying. There was a lot of name-calling. Atal later accused Bronco of having gone on to that blog and posted comments under Atal's own name so that to try to isolate him from his classmates. It was like rumor had it Atal tried to get him kicked out of Alsacien for these blogs. So they were really not friends in middle school, actively not friends. Can I just point out for a second? If you're going to have a nemesis in high school, a guy named Juan Bronco, Juan Bronco, I mean, that's out of a movie, that's out of a bad John Hughes movie, but 
Yeah, well, or Gentleman Broncos, speaking of one of my favorite movies in the entire world. Okay, let's cut to now. Like, why did I go straight to Juan Broncos page on Twitter when I read the news that Atal was nominated PM? Because he hasn't stopped picking on this guy since high school. Okay, they took a brief break in the sort of mid 2010s when everybody was busy trying to make their name in politics. Juan Bronco went to Ecole Alsacienne. Afterwards, he went to Sciences Po. He got a law degree at the Sorbonne. He has master's in literature. He's the product of the elite in the same way that Atal is, who went to also went to Sciences Po, though later went to a prestigious law school, et cetera, et cetera. So at that point, there wasn't really... A, Bronco was just a, more of a grinder in the political realm, trying to make a name for himself, advising the Minister of Culture under Hollande, trying to put himself into the political milieu. Atal was doing the same thing. Bronco recircles back around to Atal really publicly for the first time since high school with this book that he publishes in 2018, called in French Crepuscule, which translates to dusk or sundown. or And it's a book about how Emmanuel Macron's election is actually an example of the, like the failing democracy of France because media barons and oligarchs anointed him president and his election was, he didn't claim that it was a cheated election, but he basically says the deck was so stacked. And among the many arguments that he makes, he spends pages and pages going after Atal, who at the time when the book came out in 2018 was not very well known. He was still kind of young minister for Macron. So it was a little bit weird that this intensely sweeping book about media and politics and captains of industry picked on, once again, this kind of young minister. But for Bronco, he said it was Atal was a, an example of the corruption and the lack of political integrity of the Macron camp. There are some rumors that Bronco was the one that outed Atal as gay. Is that true? Oh, no, not rumors. He did it. He did it on Twitter in October 2018. He's the one who first outed him. Atal was not out of the closet at the time. He outed him. And then again, in Crepuscule, which came out just a couple months later, he went into greater detail saying that Atal was in a relationship with a man called Stéphane Sejournet, who was at the time the running Emmanuel Macron's party and has now just been named foreign minister in Atal's government. They were domestic partners for something like six years. Can I ask an important question? Where's Macron in all this? Is there an adult in the room? I mean, if you're sitting there in France, like, what is going on? It sounds to me like it's just two high schoolers flinging mid at each other. And what's going to happen here? Well, let me step back and reframe this a little bit, because in fact, Atal is probably the adult in the room, to be honest. But once they moved into adulthood and into hi higher education and into professional life, Bronco went after Atal again in this book, but Atal didn't really say anything. He just kept to his own remit, worked, was extremely popular in Macron's government, and just kind of didn't have time for any of it until he went on TV as Minister of Education in November to sell an anti-bullying campaign and used his personal experience with being bullied as a way to make a mark on this campaign to make a splash with the launch. And it was really moving. He never named Bronco. He never named the book Crepuscule, but he talked in great detail. So everyone in France knew who he was talking about. But he talked about how hurtful it was, how much, how many problems it caused for him with his family, how he couldn't fight back because he was in the closet. And so if then he was going to, he couldn't explain to his parents why it was a problem that somebody was calling him gay. And it went on. He talks about the effects that Crepuscule had as well when his father was dying and it complicated his relationship with his father. It was a very moving interview. And one of the reasons I think he became one of France's most popular politicians, actually. And that was all he's ever said about it. And he's never publicly named Bronco. So what exactly does Bronco have going for him besides all this vitriol he's spewing online? OK, let's be fair to Bronco as well. He's extremely well-spoken. He's very bright. He's one of those edgelords, though, who has since 
turning away from the institutions and establishment that was seeming to put him on his path in 2012 or so, he says. He quit his position at this minister of culture and started to kind of become more of an oppositional figure. He's like an anti-Macron media savvy pest, but he's not a dumb guy. He's everywhere that Macron people are just biting them on the ass constantly. Bronco is not anybody's worst fear, but to me, he's one of the most amusing antagonists of the Macron camp. To me, I think the promise of Bronco, as you note in your story, I mean, these guys are basically 30 years old, 35. And if you're in France, you better buckle up for another 40 years of this. So it's not going away. (laughs) The norms are changing just like they are everywhere. And yeah, Social media has just completely changed the rules of everything. Yeah, the social media generation has come into power, and here we go. Yeah, here we go. Buckle up. Attaché vos Alex, thank you so much. Great story, and we love talking to you about it. Thank you. It was nice talking to you guys. See you soon. Well, Michael, those old adages are true. You never can escape high school. No, as Frank Zappa said, life is just like high school with money and maybe more access to social media these days. Yeah, that's probably for worse rather than for better. Anyway, well, after that, okay, absurdities out of the way. We do need to talk about the issues of the day. I think that brings us to Joanna Bergman. We can always count on her for some incisive read-it-only-in-airmail reporting. And today she's here to talk about how the Ivy Leagues, specifically the sporting components of the Ivy Leagues, are addressing or not addressing anti-Semitism. Joanna is a writer-at-large for Airmail, and we're thrilled to have her. Welcome back, Joanna. Hi, great to be here. So, Joanna, you've been here over the past few weeks talking about the controversy at Harvard with Claudine Gay, but now you've got a fascinating report this week about how there's a next layer of what's happening at the Ivies, and this is about specifically, at, let's look at the Ivy League, which we forget is also a sports league with student-athletes competing, and what Jewish student-athletes are encountering in the wake of all the turmoil on campus. So tell us what you've discovered this week. Sure. Well, what's interesting is in the last few years, if you go back to 2020 and George Floyd, the Ivy League really took a stand and spoke out and began a whole campaign of speaking out on social justice issues. Black Lives Matter was the first one in that period. They spoke out on the Asian spa shootings. They've spoken out a lot on various pride issues and issues in the LGBT community. They also started a campaign called Aid Against Hate. In addition, they do educational training on these topics for their athletes, which is mandatory. They give out shirts and a whole team, for example, will wear one of these shirts with a slogan to their warm-ups before their games. And also really importantly, I think people don't realize that because of their relationship with ESPN, the Ivy League has free ad spots on the network, which is a pretty incredible platform. So they have used those ESPN spots, for example, to advertise their Aid Against Hate campaign. Sometimes it's directly linked to Black Lives Matter. Other times it has been more broadly with other issues that they have chosen to to support. So what I think it's important to remember is that this league of the eight Ivy colleges has really used its platform for a variety of political and social justice issues. When October 7th happened, there was not a word from the Ivy League condemning this mass attack on Israelis, as well as people of other nationalities who happen to be in southern Israel on that day. And there has not been a word from them since. 
And this one father, Rich Silverstein from Chicago, who was the father of two Ivy League athletes. One of his sons was the co-captain of the Harvard basketball team, who, and he's now a senior. And another son is a freshman rower at Princeton. He was really bothered by this and thought it would be best to reach out. So he writes a letter to the head of the Ivy League asking, listen, as you noted in your report, he's looking for some sort of response and what are they going to do? And can tell us what he did and what happened or didn't happen. Sure. So he wrote to them to say, hey, this terrible thing has happened. In addition to the attacks on September 11th, what he was really asking for, he wasn't even asking for condemnation of that. He was asking for the league to speak out against the rise in anti-Semitism, which, as we know, was rising before October 7th, but has really risen so much since then, not just nationally, but on Ivy League campuses. And so I think he thought, hey, this ball is in your court now. It's happening within the Ivy League on your campuses. What can you do to help us to speak out against anti-Semitism since you've been speaking out on all these different issues for the last few years? And it has been very much a part of the lives of these athletes, the educational seminars, wearing the given t-shirts. These are all mandatory things they've been required to do. And I think at least in Rich Silverstein's case, his son was very happy to do these things. But then suddenly they weren't being done when there was a problem for an issue that directly affected him and his community. So he writes this letter to the league's executive director. She's been there for many, many years, and he has parents and athletes who sign it alongside him, and he gets silence. So then he writes to her again, but this time he decides he'll also write to the university, the eight university presidents. And so once he writes to them as well as her, she writes back to him within, I think it's less than three hours. And what she says is, of course, we absolutely condemn anti-Semitism. It's horrible. However, it's covered by our Aid Against Hate campaign. That includes all forms of discrimination, including anti-Semitism. So we're good. And thank you. But just a note in your reporting, I mean, Silverstein's letter now has more than 200 signatures on it, right? And he has yet to get a follow-up from Harris, even with 200 signatures and also going to the presidents of the college. So where is this going to go? I mean, as you also note in your reporting, even the league's DEI splash page contains 10 references of support for black for the black community, five for the Asian, three for the Hispanic, and two for pride. And you even reached out to her for a response. So what does this silence tell us? Is the league just a different version of Claudine Gay? They can't figure out what to say here? It's a great question. I think it'll be interesting to see if this changes. I think Rich Silverstein is in a position where he is still watching and waiting. I think he feels like he has spoken out. He has spoken out. He's meeting silence. What more can he do at this moment? I will say in terms of Harvard, there was a lawsuit filed just in the last couple of weeks by one student who is at the Divinity School, as well as a group of students who are anonymous filing a lawsuit against Harvard for anti-Semitism. That's in addition to the title, the I think it was the Title VI complaint that was filed that I wrote about in my story back in December. And I think you will see more legal action on that front. I think this latest lawsuit, I don't think will be the only. And so I think when people seek change multiple times and are met with silence, that is an avenue that sometimes people pursue. Will there be a lawsuit against the Ivy League 
on this. Not at the moment. That is not what I'm hearing. However, the Ivy League is embroiled in a couple of other lawsuits. They've sort of got their hands full, one might say. I think one of the things we could wonder about with the Ivy League being so different as a sports league from other college sports leagues, will it have to change possibly on many fronts? Could this be one of them? So far, certainly from Rich Silverstein's experience, he's not getting an indication that they are. But I think we'll see how this continues to go. And in the meantime, I think you will see more of the kind of activism that coaches bringing their teams to Israel, coaches bringing their teams to Auschwitz. These are things that have been done outside the Ivy League at other schools, both by Jewish coaches and non-Jewish coaches. And it'll be interesting to see if Robin Harris and the Ivy League presidents possibly make a change. Well, it's great reporting, Joanna, and thank you so much. Oh, thank you both so much for having me. Great to be here. Thank you, Joanna. Terrific reporting. All right. Well, it is dry January here in the UK, and we don't have much to do except sit at home, watch television, and talk about Mr. Bates versus the Post Office, which is a television show that has swept the nation, but that's because it's related to a very real scandal. And John Arledge, a senior business writer for the Sunday Times of London, has made sense of all of this for us in the week's issue. We're thrilled to have him. Welcome, John. Thank you. So, John, Mr. Bates versus the post office. I mean, this is the new The Crown here in the UK. Everyone's watching it and no one can stop talking about it. What is it? It's a docudrama, rather, the rather dull subject of accountancy, but it's a little bit more than that. It's really looking at the way a huge scandal developed in our postal system in the UK over 20 years. Japanese company had introduced a new, essentially, online bookkeeping program that they said was infallible, foolproof. Problem was, it wasn't. It was riddled with bugs. And various postmasters and postmistresses who run these little branches of our postal service suddenly found their accounts didn't add up. And when that happened, the post office got rather cross and prosecuted them for theft and false accounting. The only problem was they'd done actually nothing wrong. About 700 people were prosecuted and convicted and went to prison. Almost 4,000 were pursued by the post office and none had done anything wrong whatsoever. It's taken about 20 years of dogged journalism and now this docudrama to really bring this out. It is as Rishi Sudak, the Prime Minister, said in, in the House of Commons recently, the greatest ongoing miscarriage of justice in British history. So, John, every story has a hero. There is, in fact, a real Mr. Bates. So tell us who he is and how he basically brought all this to light. Mr. Bates, Alan Bates, now 69, is a typical, what you might call, British bloke. He lives in Wales. He likes going for walks and wet wellies in soggy hillsides and drinking warm beer at the end. That's the kind of solid fellow, sort of solid chap that he is. He's also a sort of dogged stickler for detail. And he ran one of these post offices that had problems with the computer system. And it showed that he'd allegedly stolen about £1,200, about US dollars And he knew he hadn't. So he refused to sign off his accounts. He was fired by the post office. He'd lost his post office that he'd used his life savings to buy and then decided to campaign to clear his name. And he thought there'd be many others involved. And as it was, he managed to form this amazing campaign group. This is pre-social media, don't forget. It's pretty impressive. Managed to form this amazing campaign group, which ended up in a total victory of clearing the names of these 7,000 people who were convicted, 4,000 who were accused. And now they're going to get compensation of about a million pounds, about $1.4 million each. It's an 
extraordinarily impressive campaign by just this dogged guy who just never, ever, ever, ever gave up saying it was the computer, it was the computer, it was the computer. Nobody believed him at first, but he was right. And John, I mean, what's interesting to me, again, as someone who lives far away from where you are, post offices in the UK, I mean, this is like your tea cozies committing a crime. I mean, just for the audiences over here in the US, they occupy a very special place and the people who run these occupy a very special place in every small community, really, right? The post office in any small village town or even in a big district city, it's kind of a hub, if you like. It's much more than just a kind of store or a shop. It's sort of part of the community. These are run by men and women with sensible names like Alan and Mary, and they wear sensible shoes and they're very sensible people. And they look after your money and they sell you stamps and they make sure you can send your postcards and your Christmas cards and your parcels to remote Scottish islands. Uh, They also often run by husbands and wives. There are about 19,000 branches of the post office in the UK. They're normally run in cities and in the small villages actually by couples. They buy the franchise for about $85,000 and then they get the right to run it and make whatever money they can make out of it. A job people do tend to do for love. You don't get paid very much. Your salary is probably thirty to 35000 US dollars. It's not a king's ransom, but you become really sort of plugged into the community. Everybody knows you. You know everybody. You become almost like a sort of someone like as a mixture between an agony aunt and someone that solves your problems and there's always has time for a chat and maybe they'll give you a slice of homemade cake when you go in. I guess a cross between a place you go to post a letter and a tea shop, if you like. It's a fun place to go. Kids love it. It's where everyone used to go to get their first driving license and passports. People have very fond memories of it. People kind of love them. They really do. And they can't, they could never imagine anything bad could happen in the post office. Trouble is, something really wicked was going on. Now this show has come out, where is this scandal now and how has it played out? And what's happened to all these people who were great miscarriage? And what's the sense of inside the UK right now? The docudrama has exploded onto into published consciousness. There were lots of stories about the scandal before, but nothing really cut through in the way that this docudrama. I mean, dramas tend to do that, right? You can say, take sides in dramas, you can have heroes and villains. So it really crystallised it well. And it got an enormous response from the public and an enormous political response. Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, stood up in the House of Commons and announced that he was going to introduce emergency legislation to exonerate all these 4,000 people, the 700 who were convicted. This is going to happen very, very quickly. So their names are cleared. And then we move on to compensation. They'll get about a million pounds each, up to a million pounds each, those that were wrongly accused and wrongly convicted. And then the blame game begins or the reckoning begins. And those in the post office who quite obviously concealed the problems with this computer system, they knew it was shonky, but they pretended it wasn't. They're under the spotlight. There may well be criminal charges against them for dishonesty or perjury. There'll be fines. There'll be all sorts of clawbacks on the post office. And then there's the Japanese company Fujitsu, which made the computer system. They too helped the post office with all their prosecutions, knowing all along there were problems with the system. They too will be on the hook for presumably some kind of prosecution. They've also agreed to make a financial contribution to the compensation fund. I should add that both the post office and Fujitsu have said they're truly sorry, but that's about 20 years too late for most of the postal workers. I should also point out there's a lot of restitution, as you know, but at least two of those individuals committed suicide because of this. The shame was so great. I mean, that's incredible. So sad. The postmasters and mistresses who were accused went from being pillars of the community to pariahs. They were spat at in the street. They were forced out of their homes. Many of them became they had to make up some of the shortfalls for these imaginary shortfalls 
They went bankrupt, didn't find jobs, they ended up living in their cars, and sadly, in some cases, committed suicide. The television program concentrates on one gentleman who spent £106,000 of his own savings trying to rescue his post office's reputation and couldn't do it, fell into depression and went out sadly one morning and stepped out in front of a speeding bus and was killed, leaving a grieving widow. It had an astonishingly deep and dreadful social effect on communities, on individuals, and the money will go some way, the compensation will go some way for making up for that, but it really won't be enough for many of them. John, do we sense any criminal ramifications for those who are involved at the highest levels in covering up this scandal? The police in the UK are investigating various people in the post office and in Fujitsu. There could be criminal charges. They could range from anything from dishonesty to perjury. A lot of senior executives of the post office and Fujitsu gave evidence in the trials leading up to the convictions of the postmasters and mistresses. They essentially testified that the computer system, which is called Horizon, was robust. I think at one point they said it was safer than Fort Knox. Well, we now know from various leaked documents to newspapers, investigative journalism, program makers and the public inquiries that are taking place that they knew that it was buggy as hell. But they said it was fine. There'll be a lot of people who will be feeling the heat at the moment in both the post office and at Fujitsu. How high up do we think knowledge of this scandal went? Like, who's sort of the top villain in this story? The top villain is a woman called Paula Venel. She was the chief executive of the post office between 2012 and 2019 and was actually awarded with a CBE, a gong from the then Queen for services to the post office, would you believe? She was also brilliantly a part-time vicar, part-time priest in a church just north of London where she lived. She is the person who more than any doggedly insisted that the Horizon computer system was robust. She used the expression safer than Fort Knox. She said it was absolutely reliable. There is plenty of evidence inside the post office, which she ran as CEO. This computer system was utterly unreliable. Lots of reports have been done. Lots of memos have been written. There's lots of paperwork. She might try to claim that she didn't know. I don't think that's going to wash. So, John, in your piece, you suggest that dry January may have played a factor in the popularity of this show. Explain. Britain's, as you know, a sort of a nation of semi-professional drinkers, except for January, where they try and sort of get around the problems or salve their liver and their conscience by not drinking. So they don't drink in January. They sort of binge drink for 11 months and then binge purge. It's a very strange way of living. Anyway, the timing of this couldn't have been better because it came out in the 1st of January, where everyone traditionally stops drinking after massively over-drinking the night before. That means that for the four days, consecutive days that this trial went out, everyone was in the first week of dry January, which is the worst, by the way. And they're sort of massively irritable and prone to outbursts of rage at the smallest provocation. So it was really brilliant timing. Everyone was watching this and got incredibly angry at what they were seeing to the point where 1.2 million Britons signed an online petition for Paula Venels, the chief executive of the post office, to hand back the uh, CBE, the gong that she'd been given by the Queen. And she duly did it. Maybe we should praise abstinence in this case. Good things come. Michael and I are going to do a toast to your great story. Thank you so much for it. And thank you for joining us. That was terrific, John. Thank you. Thank you so much. Man, Michael, what a story. Gotta see it. Gotta check it out. It's hard to watch in the US. It's on ITV, but I haven't spoken with anyone yet in the States who's been actually able to get it via VPN. So I think that means you've just got to come over here and come to London. We've got lots of excuses to celebrate. Lots of excuses. And when we're in London, I want to talk about a story you also have in this week's issue about one of my favorite places that is coming back. And it's the return of a restaurant called Le Caprice and our great friend Jeremy King. But it's a little confusing. So tell us what's happening with 
the return of this legendary restaurant. Okay, well, let's go back to 1981. A dashing young gentleman named Jeremy King and his partner, Chris Corbin, were working together at Langen's, the well-known Mayfair Brasserie, and they had an opportunity to buy this old restaurant in St. James called Le Caprice. And these two young men took it over, and within minutes, it was the stomping ground for London's Beaumont. Everyone from Mick Jagger to Elizabeth Taylor to Princess Diana was eating there all the time. And it's a small restaurant. It's at 20 Arlington Street in St. James, right around the corner from the Ritz. But for 20 years, it was the place to see and be seen, and the food was always solid. And it was a launch pad of sorts for Jeremy King and Chris Corbin to open many other restaurants, including some of our favorites like the Wolseley, Jay Shiki, the Delaney, Brasserie Zadell. They even had a hotel for a while. Anyway, let's fast forward. Jeremy and Chris sold the restaurant in the year 2000. In 2005, it was bought by a gentleman named Richard Caring, who's a restaurateur here in London who has establishments like Annabelle's and Scott's and Sexy Fish and more recently Bacchanalia, which is a truly interesting specimen on Berkeley Square. And it was still a thing. People still went, I suppose. And then it closed. Jeremy King has had a long career and he ended up splitting with his backers and he started fresh for the third time, kind of starting a new restaurant group called Jeremy King Restaurants. And why this is such a brilliant move is this is one of three restaurants Jeremy is opening this year. But it's really a great return to the place that made him so well-known in the first place. It was his first big success. And London can't stop talking about it. Now, he's not going to be calling it Le Caprice. It's going to be called the Arlington. And that's because Richard Caring still has the name. But everyone in London is talking about it. It's going to be opening at the end of February. And we really miss Jeremy in this town. He's really not only an incredibly thoughtful and successful restaurateur, but he always made these places that became hubs of London society. And by society, I mean society. Everyone who loved food, who loved drink, who loved being together. People from really all walks of life have always populated his restaurants. And that's why the mix is so good. So people are very excited about the return of the Arlington because there just aren't that many places in London. This is the town of private clubs. Jeremy always managed to be a guy who could make a private club for the people, so to speak. And we've sorely missed that. So to be clear, it will be in the former spot of Caprice, but it'll be called the Arlington, correct? Yeah. So we can just start talking about it from here on out as the Arlington, the Arlington, the Arlington, which is going to be hard for people who went there in the 80s and 90s to remember at first, because for them, it looms so large in the memory. It's like coming up with a new name for La Grenouille or something like that. But trust me, by the end of the month, it's going to be the first thing on everyone's lips. Yeah. Or I feel like people being people, there'll be a point where you'll say, I'll meet you at Caprice and you'll know you mean the Arlington because there's only one Caprice, right? So I'm sure it'll sort of gain that sort of shorthand as well. But regardless, Ashley, I look forward to seeing you there when I get to London. Oh, we've got to go. I mean, when I interviewed Jeremy King for the story, he said he's not really going to do an opening night because frankly, even if he invited 200 people standing, there would be 2000 people on the list who would justifiably be annoyed that they weren't invited. But he is probably going to do one night where he invites all of the people who have been involved with Caprice over the years to come and have a celebratory dinner, just coming together to celebrate the renaissance of this incredible establishment and its rebirth as the Arlington. So it's a good idea. So I think by the time you and I eat there, it'll probably be end of February, mid-March, but I know we will do so very enthusiastically. I, for one, cannot wait to taste the Bang Bang Chicken. Fantastic. All right, Michael, finally, it is the weekend. We are released into the wilds. Do you have anything at all you can recommend to help pass the cold and lonely hours? Ooh, cold and lonely hours. Sounds so dramatic. I do. We've been talking about spy shows like Slow Horses. And instead of another spy story to watch, I wanted to recommend a new one to read. It's a novel that we mentioned last week in the issue. It's called Ilium, I-L-I-U-M, and it is by Lee Carpenter. And it's a smart espionage thriller that centers on a young woman in London who was recruited into a CIA plan to assassinate 
also need a Russian oligarch living in Bordeaux. But that's just the surface story, like any good espionage novel. There's so much more beneath the surface, and there are so many compelling and competing characters. I read this book in one weekend, so actually it's good for these cold, lonely nights, and I loved it. Lee Carpenter's writing is masterful, honestly. It's so mesmerizing. The voice is just dazzling, and it's also a very moving story as it's told by this very young, sensitive woman who is recruited for the mission. The book is called Ilium. The writer is Lee Carpenter, and it's out now. And you, my dear, what would you like to recommend? We love Lee Carpenter. I'm only a few pages into this book, but she was our perfect ending last week in the issue. I know. You can read the book, and then you go back to that issue and read, she's such a great tastemaker, what she loves in the world. No, she and I both love Medea Bags. We have one thing in common. She's a brilliant writer. I'm a so-so podcaster. Anyway, okay, Michael, I do have something to recommend, and I'm reading this fantastic book right now. It's called The Rachel Incident, and it's by Carolyn O'Donohue. She's a fiction writer. She lives in London now. She's originally from Cork, but her debut novel was something you and I know and love, Promising Young Women. Love Promising Young Women. Major. So her follow-up to that is The Rachel Incident, which was published last year. And it's all about a student and her best friend and a student named Rachel who falls in love with her professor, a guy named Dr. Byrne, who was married. And her best friend, a guy named James, becomes entangled in that relationship. And all sorts of hell and mayhem unfolds from that. It's incredibly well done. It's also funny. It's a love story. I just am ripping through it. It's a really delightful book. It's called The Rachel Incident by Carolyn O'Donohue. Not to be confused with The Rachel Papers by Martin Amos. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I read that too. Anything Rachel we're into. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. And we'd also like to thank our sponsor, Chanel. It does not get much better than that. Michael, will you please read us out? I would be happy to. And stay warm and toasty this weekend. That's Ashley's prescription for everyone. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe. Enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meetings. But in the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.